Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now, today's episode is a little different. On a typical episode, I would have a discussion with someone from a different profession and just try and understand their job in a lot of detail. But on today's episode, I thought that it might be interesting to do a little bit of a recap on all the interesting stuff that we've covered so far on this podcast. So this is the 28th episode. And so far of the 27 episodes that have already been published, 22 have been interviews with people from different professions, different careers. The rest were more TED Talks and lectures, etc. that I found online and I thought would be interesting and helpful for the audience of this podcast. But the rest were all interviews with people, guests that have shared a lot of great detail, a lot of great insights, a lot of great content that hopefully has been interesting and helpful. So I thought that what I will do on this episode is share short snippets from each of these episodes, more like excerpts that act as a refresher for your memory. So hopefully you will enjoy this recap. Um, quick note before we get into the recap, when I was going through these discussions for this episode, I realized that many guests have mentioned how companies are using case interviews uh, when they're interviewing candidates for various jobs and roles. And I thought it might be interesting to share some sort of resource for anyone who is now preparing for these case interviews or who just wants to understand the case interview process a little bit better. So what you can do is download the case interview guide that the Wharton Consulting Club put together for its students back in 2010. It's a little old, but it's still very, very relevant, very helpful. So I would highly recommend it. So if at all this interests you, go ahead and download it from the LED website. You can check it out at www.learneducatediscover.com. So that was a quick housekeeping note. And now let's get back to the recap. I hope you enjoy today's episode. And uh, that's it, I guess. All right, so this very first snippet is from the discussion on product management in the tech industry. This was with Christine Folk, who is a senior product manager with LinkedIn. And in this snippet, she talks about how there are three kinds of product managers. Okay. And actually, I was thinking about this when you were talking about how there are very different kind of decisions that you need to take at different points of the product mm -hmm. life cycle. Do you think a PM also needs to be someone who can think at very, very different levels? So at some point, you might be thinking very high level when mm -hmm. you're thinking about the product vision. Yeah. But then during execution, you have to be very, very detail-oriented. That's, that's exactly right. So like you need to be able to think all the way at, like, hey, what, where do I want to go in like the next like three to five years? All the way down to, like, hey, this, this color on this button at this position is really like the right yeah, decision that yeah. we want to make for, for our product. It's definitely a very wide range of decisions. Yeah, but I would imagine that that's a very hard combination to find in one 
human being, right? Because mostly people tend to be one or the other. That's right. So I would think I, I would say that generally PMs, there are kind of like three categories of PMs. Like there may be PMs who are really more kind of business minded. That they really like their their interest or maybe their strength is to understand like the, the market and, and the vision. There may be some PMs who are very creative. What they excel is the ability to really think outside the box and to really be able to uh, think of like creative solutions to a problem at hand. And then there are PMs who are very analytically minded, and they are really great at understanding like how our customers, is, say, using our product, really data driven about how we make decisions. And generally, like you said, it's very hard to find all these traits in the same person. There's, I guess there's no one definition of like where's the best place to be, like whether it's in the center of, mm-hmm. of, of these three. Probably usually people are more towards like kind of one side of the triangle uh, than the other. Right. But usually it's important for you to kind of recognize mm-hmm. where you are in that triangle and be able to kind of maybe move towards or, or be able to improve on the areas that you may not be as good. But I think ultimately it's very rare to see someone who's like right in the middle who are excelling in those three. Yeah, I can imagine that. So that was Christine on three kind of product managers. The next snippet is from the discussion that I had with Anuj Kulkarni, who is the co-founder of Prajwal Bharat, a social venture in India that is trying to provide lighting infrastructure across rural, rural India. And in this snippet, he talks about what is the definition of a social enterprise. All right, so I think at this point, it'll be helpful if you can describe in your own words, how would you describe a social or rather a social enterprise? A social enterprise is really any business. I think the first misconception which people end up doing is that they kind of mix up non-profits with social enterprises, right? Social enterprises are by definition for-profit entities. The goal is to make profits, right? At the same time, you so it it ranges as far as the definition is concerned from person to person on the ground so for example if you make money or if you have a for profit business operating in at the bottom of the pyramid and let's say because your target population in that business is earning you know 2 and a half dollars per day mm-hmm. that is your target population now just because you are servicing in at the bottom of the pyramid, you become a social enterprise, right? I'm going to flip this around and say, what if you're just selling tobacco or cigarettes, right? right. Then does that count as social enterprise? <laughs> That's a great and point. And then the answer would answer would be no, right? So it, it definition of social enterprise has a variety of these issues involved. You know, who the customer is, what is the social impact? How is the social impact measured? If your enterprise sort of answers a variety of these questions, then you sort of end up saying that, okay, this is a social enterprise. So in our case, for example, our customer was a local gram panchayat with a population of less than 15,000, mm-hmm. right? Who don't have a service provider coming down to their village and putting out those lights. Right. Our social impact was measured in the number of lights put out, in the crime rate reduction, in the reduction in the number of accidents and the actual kilowatt hours of energy saved. That is the social, social oh, impact metric that we used to look up to. Right? Very interesting. 
Okay. That metric was tied in well with profits, right? The more number of flights we put out, the more energy we save. And that is also tied in with our revenue because the more lights we are putting out, our revenue increases. So that is when an entrepreneur like me would align the goals in a similar way that my financial impact is also creating a social impact. Right. No, and uh, I hope that uh, sort of uh, gives you a decent overview of how social entrepreneurship is like no i think this is a this is a great great point because you're right that a lot of people tend to think of social enterprise very similar to an ngo or a charity and that's completely not the case it's just aligning our profits with a positive social goal so uh, that's a great clarification so that was anuj on what is a social venture and that episode was very well received because he spoke about entrepreneurship and his business with so much passion and enthusiasm So the next snippet is from a very early episode. This was episode number 3 that I did on management consulting with Rahul Mangla who is an engagement manager with McKinsey and Company and in this snippet he talks about how management consulting teams are structured. And so typically how are the teams structured? Are you working with other colleagues from within mckinsey and solving the problem yeah yeah the the way it works is and again i'm speaking for mckinsey it may be different for different consulting firms but we typically have a have an engagement manager who leads the the project at the client so in in our lexicon projects are called engagements and for each engagement there is at least one engagement manager engagement manager's job think about him as a project manager but a content project manager so they just don't do pure project management they are supposed to also lead the problem solving and the team is structured around them in some way so there's an em or an engagement manager and then engagement manager would have in his or her team anywhere between 1 to 4 or 5 associates who would then own uh, smaller parts of the problem so the engagement manager pretty much owns the client issue that he or she with with experts would help break it down and as you break it down the associates own solving a, a smaller piece of the problem and then to tie it all together you have a partner from the firm or an equivalent who owns the relationship with the client um to uh, to make sure who's eventually accountable for for making this work and solving the problem and who's not full time on the project but would review progress and make sure that we are headed in the right direction. So the engagement manager and the team are full time on the project really solving the problem, breaking it down, making sure the wheels are turning and the partner sort of owns the relationship and is overall eventually accountable for delivery. I see. So that was Rahul describing how management consulting teams are typically structured and in this next snippet We have Michelle Macharg who is a recruiter in the tech industry and here she talks about how recruiters need to be good at reading people. Uh do you think that good recruiters have to be what a lot of people refer to as good at reading people? I do. I think, you know, recruiters need to be able to have that spidey sense to say this person I feel there's something I feel is not right. And sometimes you may not be 100% right, but usually when you go with your spidey senses on a particular candidate, 
you can feel you go with that gut instinct. And sometimes you're right. I mean, if, if you have an example, can you share something? So I did. I do have an example. I had a candidate that we, uh, I was working with a chief of staff at one of the companies I was with a few months back. And um, this particular candidate was super excited to come. Had She had accepted the offer. But I started to get a lot of emails from her, just random hello emails like, hey, how are you? I want, I just received my review here at my current company because she, she had extended her start date with us. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like that was odd, you know? So I had spoken to the chief of staff and I said, you know, I do not feel good about this. I think she's going to renege or ask for more money, but something is up with the, the communication that I'm getting constantly from her. And he's like, no, you know, it's okay. I think we'll be fine. I'm like, I don't think it will be fine. And, you know, sure enough, four weeks later, she called and said she was going to renege the offer and stay where she was at. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't it like, so I have two follow up questions to that. I guess this is something, is this something that you always had again or again, you had to develop on the job? It's something you develop on the job. I think, you know, just through the many years of trial and error, because you're dealing with people, recruiting, you know, you're, we're, we're the people function of a company. Mm-hmm. And you just don't know how people are going to react. You, and then you just start to get experiences from just different experiences that you go through just through your career to just know that this particular thing can potentially happen because it's happened in the past. And sometimes it surprises you and it doesn't happen, but you do start to build some library of things that can help you for your future of dealing with other candidates. Right. I mean, can you share some, some things from your library? Um, I mean, for instance, that particular person, I feel like almost when someone candidate who has accepted starts emailing you weekly, just to do these weekly chats, <laughs> I feel like they're just trying to get some affirmation, like right. should they do this or they're really um, confused, right. right. Uh, on what they should do. Because typically if you're a great employee, your company's not going to want to lose you. So, of course, you're going to go through um, them trying to have you stay, which makes it also difficult on the, the, the employee who then, you know, you want right. to come to your company. Right, right, right. So that was Michelle, who works as a talent partner with a VC firm called Cowboy VC right here in Bay Area, talk about how recruiters need to be good at reading people. The next snippet is from a discussion that I had with Indrajit Dixit on working in business strategy. Indrajit is a business strategy planner with Hewlett Packard. And in this snippet, he talks about the difference between business strategy and corporate strategy. So this is, uh, this is a good point because I didn't realize that corporate strategy and business strategy are two different things. Could you perhaps elaborate a little bit on the differences between the two? Sure, and this is just my perspective, so take it with a pinch of salt. But I think uh, at a very high level, corporate strategy, it's more about uh, your position as a company within the universe of competitors that you play with. For example, for HP, uh, the question really is, you know, what is Dell doing? As As a corporate strategist, questions that I would like to answer are, you know, what is Dell doing? What is, uh, say, a Samsung doing? Or what is a Canon doing? And how can we do it better than them? The business strategy, on the other hand, is more rooted in, as I said, the business itself. So the questions that we typically try to answer now 
are, you know, everyone knows that we, HP sells a lot of printers. So the question for us is, how do we sell those printers better? Like how can we improve our margins? How can we lower our costs? Which markets should we target? And how can we enter those markets? Or, you know, how can we improve our position within certain channels? You know, how can we improve our pricing? So it's much more, as I said, you know, much more engaged with the business. And this is not to say that corporate strategy is not engaged with the business, but it's just looking at a completely different set of problems. Got it. Okay. So this is this is very helpful because it sounds like business strategy seems to be more of an internal role. By internal, I mean internal facing role where you're looking at the business that you have and you're trying to figure out how to improve it. And, Certainly. And the corporate strategy role seems to be a more external facing role where you're looking at what is happening outside the company. Right, right. I think that's that's the best way to summarize it. All right. So that was Indrajit on the difference between business strategy and corporate strategy. The next snippet is from my discussion with Sean Supon on physical fitness training. Sean is the founder of a fitness training company called Range of Fit in Austin. And in this snippet, he talks about the kind of problems that a physical fitness trainer would work on. All right, so let's get to some of the more day-to-day aspects of being a trainer. So what are the kind of problems that you would typically solve on a, on a regular day? I think movement patterns are always a struggle. So everybody kind of comes from their own unique history, right? They come from different sports. They come from different cultures. They come from different activity levels. They come from different um, strength and flexibility positions. So for me, the one of the big challenges anytime you get a group of people together and you're either doing a new exercise or you're doing an exercise that people haven't perfected yet or you have new people and you have no idea what they're going to do is always to get everybody on the same page with kind of task condition standard for each exercise. So this is the exercise. This is what a properly executed version of the exercise looks like. These are the clear points at which you have to hit in order for this to be a successful rep or repetition. And getting everybody to do it right in front of me and then following up with them and hounding them throughout the workout to make sure that they're continuing to do the right exercise. An example of this could be we're doing squats and somebody's not going below parallel or somebody's knees aren't tracking their toes or somebody's arching their back and caving their chest in or they're butt winking. So there's all sorts of like little physical cues that you have to follow. And uh, it's not always easy because like some people get really irate uh, when they're at 180 beats per minute and they're, you know, they're seeing, they're seeing through that, that door, that black door (laughs) that you get to when you're really pushing hard and, uh, and all, and you come in and you interrupt them and you're like, Hey, no chest up. No, that doesn't count. Do it again. Right. Uh, yeah, so not everybody always uh, is, like, super happy to, like, just, you know, do it. Sometimes people especially argue with people, but uh, it's always fun. This is also the reason why my wife will never work out with me again is because <laughs> she is just not the kind of person that enjoys that atmosphere and a mutual intensity. <laughs> yeah. One way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So – you know, this is a very interesting point because you will be working with people of 
all kinds of fitness levels, right? Um, how do you sort of get into their heads that, hey, you know, you can do this? Yeah, uh, when you bring up probably the, you know, the next biggest problem outside of physical ability and constraints, which is mental ability and constraints. So I am never, I am never impressed with somebody who says they can't do anything. Like for one, most people have no idea what they can or can't do. They only know what they've done before and what they think they can do. And I will tell you, you give me, you give me some time with somebody and we will, we will push that envelope and we're going to grow your perspective a little bit because most people come in and they just have no clue how much pain, how much intensity, how much power they're capable of. And they're just, it's like everybody comes in, most people come in with a governor. They have a governor on their engine (laughs) and the governor restricts their output to what they think is the right, what they think is what their possible range is. And my entire job is to rip that governor off and show them what they're actually capable of doing. Yeah. And is that something that you were just always good at given your military background or is that something that you developed over time? Uh, I mean, we, so in the military, um, in the military, we, we've always prided ourselves on being able to withstand extreme amounts of punishment and continue moving. That is the entire ethos that I've kind of grown up with. And, you know, I try and instill that in everybody that I spend a fair amount of time with. Like, this world is not for the faint-hearted. The meek shall not inherit the earth. You have to be aggressive. You have to be willing to push yourself and your body and your mind way beyond what you think is possible in order to be successful. Because there's a lot of people out there who are more than happy to take your lunch right out from under you. And they're, they're training right now, getting better, getting faster, getting stronger, working harder, doing extra work. It's whether it's corporate world or fitness, that person is there. You know, in the military, we always called them Abdullah in the cave in Afghanistan. And while you're sleeping or while you're having that beer, or while you're going to watch that movie, he's out there, he's cleaning his AK, and he's thinking of different ways to kill you. So what are you going to do about it? Hmm. Don't like, you know, don't be an easy target. Be harder to kill. Yeah. Be strong. Be fast. Be durable. Be prepared. Right. All right. So that was Sean Supon talking about the kind of problems that a physical fitness trainer would work on. And in the next snippet, we have Tiffany Chen, who is the director of informatics at a startup called Cytobank here in bay area in california and in this snippet tiffany talks about what is informatics so okay so first of all if you were to describe what is informatics how would you describe it yeah sure so that's something everyone in my phd program kind of asks theirself it can mean a lot of things i think you you gave a good description i often think of it as the merger of how to store and process data but also how to analyze it and that's why it's such a broad field this is why people in informatics come from different disciplines, from like computer science and computer engineering all the way to like hardcore statistics. Because if you call yourself an informatician, it's like a rainbow scale 
of where you live on that spectrum. And that's mm-hmm. why also it's actually kind of interesting, but sometimes difficult to hire someone as a straight out informatician. In the last three or five years, they've started to segment those roles more. Like there's the role that's like that people hear more now these days, like data scientist or data engineer oh. or analyst or something like that. And are these uh, segments of informatics? I would say yes. Uh, one of the things that Stanford actually is doing is they're creating biomedical data science department. And the program that I graduated from biomedical informatics is actually going to be the only PhD granting part of that, I believe. I and so it's interesting. It's just a continuous evolution of what it actually means because another way people call data scientists is statisticians who know how to code. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, but a data engineer, which is the other end of the spectrum for an informatician, is is quite different, actually. That role is much more focused on, <clears throat> let me think about this, it's much more focused on building the infrastructure to handle the hypothesis being asked. Data scientist is the one who actually asks that hypothesis, tests right. it, and okay. actually tries to sell okay. it. Okay. So that was Tiffany describing what is informatics. And this next snippet is from my discussion with Shireen Kasim on stand-up comedy. Shireen also goes by the name of Funny Brown Girl. That is her stage name. And in this snippet, she talks about how she develops a good joke structure. And so a very important point you mentioned is how you need to have a good joke structure. Uh, that's an important element of a good act so i'm sure like in the beginning let's say some interesting incident happens and you send an email to yourself about it how do you get to that good joke structure from that initial sort of seed of an idea so it's really for me it's finding what was funny about that incident like what about it what about it makes me laugh and then once i've been once i can pull out what was the funny part about it then it's kind of building backwards to it how do i get to the funny part as quick quickly as possible because like the incident could have taken like 10 minutes, right? But I'm not going to share the whole 10 minute story mm-hmm. with the audience. So how do I trim this down to about a minute, two minute joke? And I get to the crux of the joke immediately. And so it's, it's a process of working backwards and then making sure you're keeping the audience entertained throughout the story. Okay. So maybe can you share an example? Um, sure. So, okay. So I, like, for example, um, I got asked out on a date, right? And so I was all excited. I was going on this date with this dude. And he sends me a text message and he says, hey, can't wait to see you tonight. Let's meet at P.F. Chang's. Let's do 8.23 p.m. So now in my head, I'm thinking, why does it have to be 8.23 p.m.? So I text him back saying, hey, can we do it a little earlier, like 8 o'clock? And he texted me back saying, I can't do 8 o'clock, but I can do 7.23 if you can't do 8.23. So... This, this is taking, a, this is like across the span of like two hours, right? And there's all these thoughts going through my head. I'm like, who is this kid? And like, why does he think that I have to be on his schedule? And I'm getting really agitated right now because I don't understand why he can't be flexible. So then I text him back and I'm like, can you just compromise? And he goes, I can, but I can't change the bus schedule. Oh, okay. Now, the funny part is in, in Orlando, everyone has a car. Like it's not a city here. It's a suburb. I mean, just to get to the grocery store, I couldn't walk to the grocery store. I would die. I mean, <laughs> it's like a five-mile walk. Yeah. So it's just a funny joke in Orlando. It, it wouldn't work in Boston or New York where people don't have cars, but people have cars here. And so the funny part about it to me was, okay, he doesn't have a car. He didn't mention that to me. So 
we're always going to have a date when there's when the bus schedule can kind of accommodate that date. The other funny part about it was, okay, so he'll never be able to come to my house because there's no bus stop by my house. <laughs> I mean, the closest bus stop I checked was like 4.4 miles away. Yeah. So like, and he has to change buses four times to get there. So it's like, the, the oh, joke wow. is, the crux of the joke is, okay, he he's, our dates are going to be around the bus schedule. Yeah. So now I got to work backwards to how do I get to that joke? And I also don't want to offend anyone in the audience who might not have a car as well. So I also have to be very delicate on how I deliver that joke. Right, 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 right. Okay. No, that 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 that's a great example. And and then, like, do you also have any sort of not rules, but some sort of a system around, you know, like how many words you use when you are delivering a joke? Like, because you know, the same joke, even if you deliver it, let's say, like a, a minute or two minutes the kind of words you use how many or how less of words you use can have an impact on how how good that joke is so have you observed anything like that oh yeah for sure i mean i definitely like i would go and try this joke out at open mics and i would have it long-winded so i kind of want to see where people are laughing and where people are losing interest and then from there i kind of write it out and then i keep making it shorter and shorter and tighter and tighter and definitely each word really matters. Like what word do I use where makes a difference? And so I'll just keep trying different things out and seeing, okay, this worked, this didn't work. People got offended about me making fun of him this way. So I need to work. I need to rewrite it. So it's not as, it's not as offensive and it's making, it's making, because at the end of the day, I'm not trying to make anyone upset, right? I'm just trying to make a joke about the idea of our dates are around a bus schedule. I'm not making a joke that he doesn't have a car. So you have to tweak it every word to make sure you're making that right. You're getting that point across. Yeah, yeah, it's a fine line. It's a fine line. All right, so that was Shireen talking about how she arrives at a great joke. And this next snippet is from my discussion on film production with Mike Saraswat, who has started his own film production company called Ecstasy. And in this short snippet, Mike shares an example of the kind of stressful situation that a film producer might face on set. So speaking as an outsider, you know, there is an impression and, and you just uh, mentioned yourself that it is a fairly stressful job. Can you give an example of a really crazy problem that you may have had to tackle or figure out during your time working as a film producer? Yeah, well, we were making a uh, feature recently, and for the financiers, it was European financed, and uh, yeah, we were shooting in Oxford in a, in, in a palace, and uh, it is a low-budget feature film. We were spending approximately about uh, £50,000 a day. It was a uh, 30-day shoot. The whole host, there, there were about 35, so it was a low-budget film. So there were 35 crew members, and at any given point in time, 28 actors on set including the extras. So uh, about 50 to 60 people that you're managing on a day-to-day basis. And uh, you need to make sure that there are call sheets for the following day and people are there, they're checked in at hotels and, and your assistants are making sure everything is working in the right order. And then suddenly you have an agent call you and go, sorry, my the actress you're going to have tomorrow uh, and she's going to be in six role, six uh, scenes She's going to be filmed over four days, next four days, won't be able to make it now, mm-hmm. because she has just been offered a, a bigger role on stage. Um, the first thing I thought was that is four days of filming. She is, it's all her scenes. It starts tomorrow at 9 a.m. Right now it's 5 p.m. We're in Oxford. Not, 
not in a busy place. We're in the middle of nowhere, really. I don't have a substitute. Okay, well, so firstly, accept the reality um, that you might be burning £200,000 over four days. Okay, that's the fail. You know, remember the fail scenario. Right. Go back to that always so it helps you realize. And then think of the bigger picture. And then immediately I thought of the bigger picture. I went, you know what? Bigger scheme of things? Doesn't really matter. So that that's the kind of combination you need to do with yourself. And that gives you the peace and calm, which not always, but mostly, will help you come up with an alternative solution. And all I did was I asked my casting <coughs> manager and I said, well, listen, do you remember the couple of other ladies we had shortlisted? Give them a call and let me speak to the agent. I spoke to the agent. People were like, yeah, this last minute, get her in in the first place. I said, well, listen, she was our second choice. But our first choice has fallen out. I'm on the phone to you. We're ready to make a deal. We need somebody to act in this role. Are you willing to help? So again, the point of being concise in moments of necessity. You have to be very direct, polite, very direct. Mm -hmm. I said, are you willing to help? Because I'm willing to negotiate. And the first one said no. It's said no problem. I spoke to the second one. So you've got to be persistent. Again, going back to the formula of BPH, right? You've got to be persistent. And go back to being persistent. Call the second person up. So it's five, half five. And the second person said, okay, but I'll charge you double. And so we negotiate and we bring them, knock them down slightly at the client in a nice hotel and everything and make them feel happy. And I said, okay, we will have, have somebody pick her up from her house and drive her down to the location. And we made that happen. So you need to make sure that you don't freeze. You need to think on your feet very fast. You cannot freeze. Just get off freeze, you know. You've got to be so relaxed and say, okay, this is a new scenario, new situation. How am I going to tackle this? Keep your calm, get the others to relax and take you from there. And we found, we found the replacement, and it took me hardly 20 minutes to do that. But the first oh, wow, okay. minute of that desperation, that sink that I felt, I said, my first project. Four days, £200,000 out of pocket. This is it, right? And then I used my techniques that I have to relax myself. I said, well, this is a failed fail scenario. But again, look at the bigger picture. It doesn't really make that much of a difference. It's just a little film. <laughs> and uh, and then got my confidence back on, calmed the set down, calmed the financiers down, spoke to the people, redirect, be concise, and try and make a deal. Very important. Try and close people. You've got to make a deal. You've got to be assertive and say exactly what you want. Uh, you cannot say, I was thinking that. No, I want this. Can you give it to me? This is the price. Are you willing to make a deal? You need to be assertive. That's where things start to. Oh, that's a fantastic story. So that was Mike sharing a great example of the kind of stressful situations that a film producer might face. This next snippet is from my discussion with Pauline Lamare on security risk management. And this is a very interesting example where she shares how Pauline and her company and others in this industry prepare their clients 
to manage the risk of a pirate attack. So you suggested, you know, what you might do in case of an immigrant, which is you can prepare the client to handle the situation as best as they can. What about pirates? Yeah, so for piracy, it's very interesting because there is a wide range of possibilities. So the first thing we suggest is what we call ship hardening. So you take a tour of the ship and you identify possible possible boarding points for pirates. Where pirates could come on board. Okay. And you try to make it harder for them to come on board. Uh-huh. So, for example, you, you may have seen in those movies about piracy or, uh, or uh, even in the media in pictures, you, you see sometimes ships with barbed wire all around the ship. That's one of the ways. Uh-huh. And then you, you recommend that they have fire hoses going on all around the ship. So, when you're in the high risk area, where you you know the possibility of piracy is higher, you have fire hoses outside of the ship, uh, pumping water out constantly, which makes it really hard to board because you have to climb through the water and the barbed wire. Wow, that's very creative. Okay. So and then you kind of you want to block entry points. So maybe you will uh, block some of the accesses completely. Mm-hmm. And you, you will find ways to block doors securely so that you can block them when you try to get in yourself and to protect yourself from pirates. But it has to be secure enough that you can get out in case of a fire, for example. You, you have to be able to remove it quickly, but it has to hold. Yep. So it looks like there's a job where you actually have to think about how can you manage getting attacked by pirates. So anyway, the next snippet is from my discussion with Akash Gupta on growth management in tech startups. Akash is a senior growth manager with a startup called ThreadUp in San Francisco. And in this snippet, he shares examples of great growth marketing campaigns. So it sounds like a fairly analytical role, right? More analytical than creative. It's really... um... I think the best growth managers are left and right brain in the sense that to unlock a new channel, a new way to work with influencers. You know, um, one of the, the companies that really has pioneered this as an example is Casper pioneered working with unpaid bloggers. They sent millions of emails and crawled the web to find all these new bloggers and send them content that they could write blog posts about, and then they got free content. And they may not have gotten too many impressions from the blog post, but they had a long-term strategy and a vision around SEO. And that vision had to be creatively driven in the sense that you created that channel as a channel to exist, and then you also created all the content that the bloggers could work with and had the creativity to realize that there were all those bloggers out there who wanted content. Right, that's a very interesting point. Can you give some more examples of some very interesting or crazy or weird growth campaigns that you might have seen either at ThreadUp or elsewhere? Two of my favorite examples because they really get growth managers thinking outside of the box. The first is, and I alluded to this a bit earlier, but the Facebook example. We all use Facebook every day, so it's something that everyone can relate to and think about, well, how would I grow Facebook? Well, one way is to get it into more countries. And how do you get more people to use something? 
you get it in their language. This was a huge growth step for Facebook. Focusing in on translating their product to hundreds of languages. And that has really enabled them to take over whole countries. So I think that's one example. And then the other example I really like, because it's not consumer, is HubSpot. So HubSpot has really enabled, and actually a quick background for people who may not know, what is HubSpot? HubSpot's like a marketing analytics company really focused on internet businesses. So they help marketing teams do analytics, do customer relationship management, automate marketing. Okay. So HubSpot wanted to grow. They were a venture-backed company, but they're an enterprise company. So they had slightly different growth problems. And what they did is they hacked together a free website analysis tool and a free website marketing analysis tool. So you would type in your URL and it would give you all these awesome recommendations about ways you could improve. Wow, that's very innovative, yeah. And they generated, I believe, millions of leads. For an enterprise company, that is a goldmine. Right, right, yeah. And that is something that's somewhat in growth would typically be thinking about how can you do some stuff like that which would really put your company on a completely different kind of growth path. Exactly. Okay. All right. So that was Akash sharing examples of some interesting growth marketing campaigns that different companies have used in the past. This next snippet is from my discussion with Esther Lee Cruz on content marketing. She is a B2B content marketer with LinkedIn. And in this snippet, she talks about some of the common mistakes that content marketers might make early on in their careers. So, I mean, you've been in this field for some time now. Have you seen any common mistakes that people make, especially when they're starting out in their careers in content marketing? Hmm. For me, I made a bunch of mistakes because mm-hmm. I had no background in marketing or in writing. And I thought that I could be a great marketer just because I was a great project manager and I could think strategically. But ultimately, where the most important skill you can have as a content marketer is being a good storyteller and writer. And I underestimated how important that was. So I actually didn't really work a lot on that skill in the beginning. But now that I realize that it's the foundation for every type of content that we do, I'm working at it a lot harder. But do you think that is, so for example, you shared an example, I think it was for Airbnb that you shared, where they they were sharing some sort of statistics about the industry, right? And do you think there's that is more sort of sharing hard data as opposed to, sharing a story or do you think there's some aspect of storytelling that you need to master everywhere i think it's the latter because even their their data they couched in a story about how airbnb was lifting up the economy and helping seniors create better lives for themselves Mm -hmm. through renting out their apartments and then here's some facts behind that i see i see so that like emotional trigger and was a really good story angle to feed the data through. So if you're interested in this field, the sooner you can start developing that skill, the better off you'll be. Exactly. Okay. And I think a lot of other jobs require this skill. Like if you're a management consultant, you need to be able to tell a good story with data. (laughs) But it's the story that people 
remember. And the data supports the story. So that was Esther Lee Cruz on common mistakes made by content marketers. And now sharing my last snippet for this episode. This one is from the most recent episode on sales and marketing consulting with Nikhila Jayaprakash, who works as a sales and marketing consultant with ZS Associates. And in this snippet, she shares some great advice for pretty much anyone, which is the importance of finding a mentor. All right. No, this is extremely, extremely helpful, Nikhila. Is there anything else, any sort of parting advice you'd like to share with someone who might be considering this role? So in this may be even more general advice. Um, I was just reflecting some more on the question, what I wish I'd known earlier in my career. So mm-hmm. one was the networking piece and maybe closely related to it is also figuring out your career mentors and coaches both. Um, and it could be when you're in school, just finding a senior, someone who's like three years ahead of you in what you're hoping to do in the future, five years, 10 years, trying to figure out who those people are, maybe track them down on LinkedIn, try and reach out. Hopefully you'll be able to make a connection somewhere because that takes some time and effort to build. And, um, like it's even for me, like later on, I've realized, Oh, I should probably have someone who can be more objective about my career and my career trajectory and like what should I be doing differently it's something's really hard to make that assessment yourself and so which is where having mentors to help you coach like coach you on a more day-to-day basis and then maybe even almost like a professional coach or someone to help you think longer term about your career keep those at the back of your mind even if you're just starting out yeah no I, I think that is very very good advice All right, so that was a little bit of a recap of some of the great content that our guests have shared on this podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed this recap and that you're enjoying and finding helpful this podcast series overall. I personally am really enjoying putting together all of these episodes and I hope to continue getting more guests on this podcast, sharing more great content, insights and details with you guys. Of course, as always, if you have any feedback to share with us or if you have any suggestions on professions that we should include in our upcoming episodes, feel free to email us. You can email us at learneducatediscover at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us. Our Twitter handle is at LED underscore curator. You can also like us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover. Also, if you really like what we are doing, if you enjoy this podcast, you can subscribe to the show. You can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher. You can simply search for Learn, Educate, Discover and hit subscribe. And just to remind you, for any of you who are interested in case interviews, uh, preparing for any upcoming case interviews, you can download the sample Wharton case interview guide that was put together by the consulting club at Wharton in 2010. So I hope you find it helpful. You can find it on the LED website at learneducatediscover.com. I also want to give a quick shout out to students who have helped me with various aspects of this podcast and who have really helped me sustain this effort. Some of them have helped me for a few days, some for a few weeks, some for longer periods of time. And all of them have been very, very helpful to me throughout this process. 
So there is Kushbu Kumari, who is currently a student at IIT Roorkee. Then there is Sadawat Sharma, who is currently a student at UT Austin. There is Yashwardhan Kanoi, who is currently a student at St. Xavier's College in Calcutta in India. And then there is Kayla Bautista, who is a student at Binghamton University in New York. So thank you so much, guys. Your help was extremely, extremely helpful. And that's it for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And until the next one, bye-bye.